Amen. Great song. Well, we're still in the first chapter. We might be in the first chapter for many Sundays. (laughs) Don't leave. Don't leave. No, we'll get through with it. We left off 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. I expounded on it a little last Sunday. So we'll just gleam over that verse today. Paul was telling the Corinthian church that Christ did not send him to baptize. And Paul is not minimizing baptism because Jesus said we should, after we are saved, be baptized. But Paul was just saying that a baptism alone does not save you from your sins. It's when the Holy Spirit, when you confess and repent and the Holy Spirit supernaturally places us in the body of Christ. Paul gets back on topic quick. He says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. That wasn't his calling nor his point. His point has been to jolt the Corinthian church into seeing the folly of their kind of allegiance to man. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, latter part, we talked about this. It says, I am of Paul, they were saying, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And he moves on to what he did, why uh, Christ sent him. And he quotes from the Old Testament scripture, Isaiah 6, 8. Also, it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Paul did not choose, he said it many of times, to become an apostle. Rather, Christ sent him. And this really serves as a turning point in, in the argument he has, whereby he sets out the contrast, their present concern and wisdom evidenced by eloquence. That's what the Corinthians are hung up on. This Sophia, this wisdom, they think it's more important than the preaching of the word. And Paul is going to correct them on that. Paul does not understand baptism to affect salvation. The preaching of the cross is the number one thing. And that's what the cross does. When, of course, it's accompanied by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. Baptism comes after one is born again. It does you no good to be baptized and you haven't been baptized into the spirit, into the body of Christ. I said it last Sunday, just baptism alone does not save anyone. It's something a a believer does and Christ has commanded that. After he is born again, John 3, 17, 18 tells us when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you he made alive 
who were dead in trespasses and sin. We, we all know the uh, importance of this. You may be walking around moving, but if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, where it counts most of all, you're still dead in your sins. He says it again. It's so important in chapter 2, verses 5 through 6. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, he says, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The word, the logos, Jesus Christ did that. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the evangelizo, to bring the good news, to announce the glad tidings. Same thing John the Baptist was doing. Jesus Begin to do. And then he says, not with wisdom. That's one of the Corinthians hang up. They were boasting in wisdom. Uh, uh, Sophia. So he says, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul would debate them sort of. He would use his rhetoric to go back and forth with them. Rhetoric is the art of effective persuading, speaking, or writing, especially the use of figures of speech and of other compositional techniques. He literally says here, not in Sophia, because that's one of their hangups of word, of logos. It's most descriptive and means something like, I'll paraphrase it, not with the kind of Sophia that is characterized by rhetoric, eloquence, or perhaps reason or logic. We're going to find out this morning, it does not take reason or logic or wisdom to come to know Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is enough. And it would be made, Paul says, of no effect if you tell people that they have to believe by faith, that's true, and then you have to do something, speaking of baptism, to seal it, to make you born again. That's works. And Jesus is saying, he's told us, and Paul is saying, the only work you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And the Corinthians, they're they're moving away from that. They're stuck on Sophia. He says, otherwise, the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. God does not need us to simplify the message or make it easier to understand or to make it more complicated because it's not, I've told you time and time again, it's not with the mind that one is saved. They're saved through the heart. The heart will always make a convert of the mind. He says, when we start to think it's because of our intellect, our persuasive words, and the way we say things, and that's the reason we succeed or not, when we share, we will never lead anyone to Christ. God will not let us boast on ourselves. Matter of fact, we should say really the least amount we can, and if you, you would do better if you would just give the Scripture to them, the Word of God, or at least repeat the Word of God, because the Holy Spirit moves by the Word of God. The less we say and the more we give the sinner God's word, 
the more successful we will be. The cross of Jesus Christ, it will be made of no effect if we go about it in any other way. If you tell people, believe, that's faith, that's true, and then they have to do something to be baptized, you see, that's work. And it doesn't work like that. You're mixing grace and works. And when you mix grace and works, you rob the cross of its power. Jesus said, all you have to do is believe with your heart, period, end of story. And because you've been saved, then you can be baptized to express that faith. Otherwise, the cross of Christ, he says, will be of no effect. I like what Spurgeon said in the scripture. He said, the scripture is a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just turn it loose and it will defend itself. That's what we have to do. That's what God wants us to do. Give the logos, give the word to people. It will take effect. It might not happen right then, but if they continue to read and people continue to tell them the word by the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, it will produce fruit. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, for the message, the logos, the word, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. It's moronic. That's what you used to say when you weren't born again. Showing of lack of good sense. Who would ever preach the gospel and think someone would be saved? Try to understand he's talking about the preaching of the cross. When he held, it, it was held most despicable in the Mediterranean area. They took it in shock. When they heard it, it was not what they expected, certainly not the Jew. And for the Greeks and Romans, with their pantheon of gods, I like to call them superheroes because all of their gods are back in the Marvel movies anyway. <laughs> it was folly, Paul says, and foolishness to them. It was, and it still is, they think it's insanity to non-believer. So Paul says this is not just another philosophy. It's not another philosophical position. He says, but it's the power of God, the gospel. He will tell us this is God's testimony, and it is God who adds the power to his word. There's a life-changing power to the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. It had to be to save me. And that's what it does to every unbeliever whose heart is open to hear it. You have to be moronic. That's what that word means, to believe this, being saved to those unbelievers who are in the process, and that's what it means in the Greek, they're in the process of perishing. Perishing, I tell you all the time, it's not a lack of being. If you die without Christ, you just you don't cease to exist. But there's a body, just like a glorified body, there's a body fit for you in hell. And so you have an existence there, and you will always have an existence there. So it's a perishing of well-being. That's what it means. Paul goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, 
It is the power of God. Now, what's this being saved? I thought we were saved. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, Paul says, Yes, we had the sentence of death, death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. We have an eternal salvation when we believe in Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. That salvation is effective in our lives today, and that salvation will ultimately issue us into redemption, and we will receive our glorified bodies there. That's why he said we're being saved. We, the, the, the task has not been completed yet. But he says, but those who are presently in the state of perishing, that's what the Greek says, and they don't even know it. They're dying. They may be getting nipped and tucked, drinking carrot juice, and getting in shape. But the Bible says without Christ Jesus in your life, if, you're not, if you have not been born again, it's an illusion. You're dying. The truth is, without Christ, every day you wake up, you are perishing. And the cross to them is moronic. It's stupid. I'm sure you've heard that experience in our culture. We live like the Corinthians do. Paul goes on to say, but to us who are being saved are in the process of complete redemption. They've come to salvation. God is working in their life. They're looking forward to that day. Are you looking forward to that day when he comes for his church? He says in verse 18, it is the power of God, for it is written. And then he goes to Isaiah and he says, this is exactly what God did in the Old Testament. God was calling Jerusalem to, to put their trust and put their hope in them when they had heard that Egypt was coming down to put them in bondage. And Israel tried everything else but they did not call out to God. And everything that God said would happen that the Egyptian would do to them, it did. And that's why uh, Paul is letting them know, don't go by what you see, but go by what the word says. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Verse 20, Paul says, where is the wise? Speaking of the Greek philosophers, held in high esteem in Corinth anyway. And then he says, where is the scribe, the Jewish scholar, who could rememorize and quote the first five books of the Old Testament? In fact, historians tell us in Corinth they laid so much emphasis, not only if you were telling the truth or not when you would speak, but how you said it. That's made its way back around to us today. If you can say it right, intellectually, then just because you're a smooth talker, that's fine, whether truth is in it or not. That's what they were doing back then. Paul says, where is the disputer of this age? Where is your great orators and debaters? Has not God made foolish? Other translations says folly, but it's the same thing. 
the wisdom of the world. And what he's saying is God in his wisdom has reduced the wisdom of this world to folly, to nothing. Verse 21, he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. I'm glad he did that. Everybody isn't wise. Everybody doesn't have 180 IQ. So God says, I'm going to take the whole thing out of the realm of the mind. And he deals with the heart while the wisdom of God. It says, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul said this, that in the context of God's wisdom, God decided by human wisdom that no one was going to know his son. That's his own wisdom. So no one could brag. I know you guys don't like bragging on yourself, but God makes sure. He says, I don't want you bragging that you've been born again when you didn't do anything to get born again. You're saved by grace. Man would never move one hair breath to God if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. We have nothing to boast about. He had to call every one of us, and then we make up our mind. No one could say, my IQ is 180. That's why I, become, I came to know Christ before you. Paul tells them that God took it out of that realm altogether, so no one could boast. God, in his wisdom, decided that man and his wisdom has no means to God, but rather he chose that it would be revealed through the preaching, foolishness, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Again, if you were known as a sinner, remember, and you lived in Corinthia, Corinth, they would call you a Corinthianized. It would be an insult. If you were a Corinthian girl, but if you were a Corinthian girl and a great speaker, they would say you spoke as a Corinthian. That was something to boast about. Paul says here, it isn't about man value system. God doesn't care about the world value system. Remember in Philippi, Paul and Silas, when they were beaten and thrown into prison, In fact, the Greek word, their backs were flayed. The skin was taken off. And they went into that jail cell, and they began to sing. And God, when they began to praise him, he sent an earthquake and sets them free. After this, Paul moves on to Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. He's persecuted, and he goes to Berea. Then he goes to Athens. And there's altars on every corner. And Paul was inflamed. He got so much upset about that. When he leaves, that's when he goes to Corinth. And he says, I'm going to sink or swim with the gospel. Some people say that he didn't uh, present the gospel in Athens. But I disagree with that. It wasn't that Paul decided He would preach the gospel. He preached the gospel in Athens, but he was just making up his mind when he got to Corinth that he would sink or swim with God's message. 
You can't improve on God's message. You can't make it more relevant. So you need to just present what it says. I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I believe he will add the power to it. It's not about my cleverness of speech. It's not about what commentary I get. We should study and do all those things. But it comes down, are we preaching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? So he challenges the Corinthians, and he says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Paul says, where is the wise? Where is the Greek philosopher held in high esteem? And he's not anti-wisdom, by the way, but he's talking about the wisdom of the world, of this age, really. You guys know I watch Tucker Carlson a lot. And I was amazed. I I heard that Eli Musk was going to be on it. And so I said, let me sit down and watch what he says. And we know he's a brilliant guy. But then when Tucker asked him about this AI and they're coming, all of this stuff. And Tucker, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I doubt it. But he knows a little about Christianity. And he said, you know, AI, they don't have a spirit. This brilliant man, Eli Musk, said, well, how how do we know? How do we know? I should have turned it off right now, but I was listening about the cars and all those things. How do we know? Because God said so. Thus saith the Lord. This present world. So Paul is calling them out. He says, where is the wise? The philosophers. I've found in my life when I go share the gospel in a poor neighborhood, they, they could be doing drugs, they could be selling drugs, but they are quick to listen. They might not repent then, but they are quick to listen. But if you go to a smart guy who thinks he's smart, who knows everything, he shoots it down quickly. God knew this. So he takes knowing him out of the realm of wisdom. That's what he says. Then he says, where is the scribe, the Jewish scholar, who had all five books of the Torah memorized? That's amazing. But knowing it doesn't save you. Then Paul says, where's the disputer of this age? Where's your great orators and your great debaters? Has not God made foolish or folly? the wisdom of this world. And that's exactly what he's did. What he's saying is God's wisdom, he has reduced the wisdom of the world into folly, to nothing, when it comes to the good news anyway. Paul says, so you think the gospel is a form of Sophia, because I told you from the beginning, they're wrestling with Sophia and they're wrestling with being full of the spirit all the time. And and they're saying, Paul, we don't believe what you're saying. But Paul asked him, so you think the gospel is about Sophia? How foolish can you be? Look at the message that it's based on, the account of a crucified Messiah. Who in the name of wisdom would have dreamed that up? Only God is so wise as to be so foolish. 
Furthermore, look at its recipients, you guys (laughs) and me. Who in the name of wisdom would have chosen you, would have chosen me to be in his family? That's exactly what he's saying. And remember my preaching, Paul said, when I came to you, I was weak. I was worn out. And I spoke to you guys, and I had much trembling. And look what God did. Then he tells them in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. I'm so thankful of that. It pleased God. He's happy about what he did. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. I read a good little bit. I, I, I read a book by uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote it. And the name of it, he pokes fun at God. God is not great, he tells us. And then he begins to indict Jesus Christ, how, how it's folly to believe him and all those things. And then he named two more uh, great debaters and orators who, who went to their deathbed believing Jesus Christ wasn't the son of God. But they believe it now. It doesn't matter. God is not, the Holy Spirit is not weighing his wisdom against the world's wisdom. He's just saying it's foolishness if you think you're going to come to know his son by the world's wisdom. He's not going to give us any reason Jesus isn't going to give us any reason to brag or boast on ourselves because that's exactly what we would do if it came to the intellect of knowing Jesus Christ. Hey, I'm smarter than you. I I came to know Christ because of my intellect. So once again, he takes it out of that realm and he gives it to the heart. God decided by human wisdom that no one was going to know his son His own wisdom said that. No one can say because I I have an IQ of 180, that's how I came to know the Lord. And then Paul says, where is boasting? God says, I'm going to take it out of that realm altogether. So he decided that through through truth, his truth would be revealed by preaching. He said, to save those who believe. Verse 21 It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So it's not talking about foolish preaching. He's not talking about preaching is foolish. What it's saying is that in their minds, it was the foolishness relative to the preaching and that definite article D, the content instead of the act of preaching. He said, before it would make the cross look of no offense. We have to preach the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will save a person. Nothing else. And heavenly wisdom is what we need to come to know Christ. And then he says, in the foolishness of the preaching, to save those who would believe. Paul will divide the world up in two places here. The rest of the paragraph, it picks up on the foolishness of the cross. One, wisdom, their thing, and the cross, God's wisdom. 
They stand in absolute contradiction one to another. The foolish thing, the cross, is where God was pleased to demonstrate his saving power and redeeming grace on behalf of humankind. Paul does this by dividing perishing up in two classes, two groups. There's only two types of people in the world. He says in verse 22, for Jews request a sign. Speaking of the Jewish Messiah and his expectation, God had actively and powerfully revealed himself in the Old Testament, in their history. The promised Messiah they were looking for would restore the glory of their nation, and they thought he would do it by acting powerfully like he did at the beginning. So it says, they said, show us a sign. They repeatedly asked him to validate and authenticate what his, his messianic credentials. Their idolatry was their downfall. God had completely, they had God completely figured out, they said. So they thought he would once again make a exodus. That's how he was coming to them. He says, Greeks seek after wisdom. This too has pride in it. He's speaking of the Gentiles. We, we do it today. We laud wisdom and learning. They say it all the time that uh, when, when something horrible happens, a shooting, they said, we just need to be, they just need to be more educated. Just educate them. That's the problem, education. They don't have enough learning to know better. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we should be reading the word of God in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. That's what Deuteronomy says. It doesn't say about being smart. It's okay to be smart if you have heavenly wisdom to know Jesus Christ. But education is good for this world. But we must know Jesus That's why the world will never be settled. It will never be good. He set it up this way. We're too much leaning on everything instead of Jesus Christ. All Greeks, Herodotus said, were zealous for every kind of learning. That caused many to abandon their gods, which was wrong anyway, but they are leaning towards Sophia. That's what Paul is trying to get them out of, wisdom, That's why they don't like Paul, because when Paul speaks, he speaks the gospel. He preaches the gospel. Apollos preached the gospel. Peter, if he came down there, preached the gospel. But now they're leaning on wisdom of Sophia. Verse 23 tells us, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified Hmm. to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Greeks, foolishness rather than giving them signs and wisdom that they demanded, because that's what they were demanding, and God has plenty of both. They get weakness and folly. Old Testament told them all about the coming Messiah, and still they couldn't see it. They want strength. They want a a ruler who comes in on a white horse, and makes everything okay. And God, in his wisdom, he gives them weakness. We don't like weakness so much. The world doesn't like weakness so much. 
But that's what God gives us. If we want to believe, we've got to believe in Messiah that even though he showed weakness, is the most powerful person, God, in the world. I mean, you look at all these. I was thinking back of all the Marvel movies I watch, and it's always speaking of strength. I haven't seen a weak one yet. The only weakest one I've seen was Captain America for a little while. He didn't do anything when he was weak, though. But it wasn't until he became strong and muscular, muscular and all those things, he began to take over and dominate. Jesus says, that's the wisdom. That's the folly of the world. You want strength and weakness? I'm going to send a Messiah to you who's weak and lowly on the outside. And you've got to believe in him. Christ crucified. It's a contradiction, sort of like fried ice. One may have a Messiah, one may have a crucifixion, but one may not have them both, not in the Old Testament. He brings truth to light in the New Testament, at least not in mere, not a merely human understanding. You see, Messiah meant power, strength, triumph. No crucifixion, but crucifixion meant humiliation and defeat. Little wonder both Jew and Greek, the entire world, chose the other Messiah. During Roman times, crucifixion was the ultimate penalty reserved mainly for rebellious people, insurrectionists, and slaves. Jesus died as a state criminal, a scandal to the Jew and Greek and Christians. To the Jew, the message was the ultimate scandal. They saw him hanging on a cross, and Paul said, Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. That's why that verse right there almost made Paul a madman. Some would call him a madman. He was the antichrist in that day because he could not understand a weak messiah. He just couldn't put it together. He was thinking God himself has cursed Jesus. He hung on a tree. How could y'all ride with him? But then the latter part of verse 23 says, to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. To the Gentiles, the message of the Christ was pernicious. It was superstition and utter foolishness. Paul, that's why he almost went mad. We know his lifestyle. He was taking people to prison. He was making them blaspheme God at the point of a spear. He did all those things because he couldn't accept Jesus Christ being weak and dying on a tree. That's why he says in verse 24, but to those who are called the believing ones, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Paul comes to realize this himself on that Damascus road. When the Christ he had persecuted spoke to him, 
The Christ he hated in his love, Jesus Christ revealed himself to him. And he, and he calls out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I've said it before when we went through the book of Acts. I don't think he said it hard. I think he said it soft and gently because he wanted to save Paul. And then he tells him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And Paul asked the question, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. I thought he was persecuting the church. I thought he was persecuting everyone who called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Jesus reveals himself to Paul, he says, you're persecuting me. I don't want you to miss that. That tells me that when I'm going through something, especially something I don't want to go through, Jesus is not only there, but he's not pleased with the situation. He's crying with me. That's what he'll song. That when they sing that song, he cries with me. When I'm being mistreated, God is there being mistreated also. I think of Erica in the state she's in. Jesus is there with her and he knows our ways. He's not a God that's far off. And in three days, Paul was struck by blindness. And when he was blind, the breathtaking power of God began to speak to him. Saul thought he knew everything, thought he was going in the right direction all his life. And God began to speak to him in Arabia those three days. I bet when he read Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I bet it just jumped off the page because God was revealing himself to Paul. I believe the Passover Seder, as he began to read Genesis, it was all, he was, the text was being illuminated because God wanted him to know the truth the wisdom and the power of God, that he had come and defeated Satan and death and the grave, and he had paid our sin debt. Paul says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God, if he had any foolishness, but Paul is just saying, if he has some, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, if he had any weakness, is stronger than men. You, you guys know me. You know I like sports. You know I love music. I like a good movie. But this world is headed in the wrong place and in the wrong direction. I've never seen the world like it is in my 62 years when you ask a Supreme Court appointee what is a woman, and because of her agenda, she says she doesn't know, we're headed in the wrong direction. When we are allowing third graders to decide if they are boys and girls, we are headed in the wrong direction. 
when we are making excuses for teenagers rioting and, and, and just tearing up stores and just taking what they want and we make excuse for them, we're headed in the wrong direction. We must look up right now because I believe our redemption is near. Worldly wisdom has brought us to this place that we're living in, where we're on the precipice of self-destruction. God, in his wisdom, has counteracted the wisdom of man and has come to us with the place whereby the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He has counteracted the power of man. He has made a way for us to be saved and redeemed, and we will someday be there soon. We will step into a place where there's no more sorrow, there's no more death, there's no more sin. He, in his wisdom, has counteracted the fall of man and has come to us with a plan whereby we can be forgiven, redeemed, and saved. And Paul says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. And then he points to the Corinthians, I'm sure. And he says, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many of you are wise. That's what he said. Don't get mad at me. Not many of you are noble. People of dignity and royal blood are called. Verse 27, but God has chosen, it's his choice, the foolish things. He doesn't want you eating bugs. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. I would have never been picked if man would have set up who would go to heaven and who wouldn't. I would have never been picked. I'm reminded, and I started not to say it. Some of you guys know my life. But when I got out of jail, I was going to job after job, Pastor Terry with me, after job after job after job. And I went home and I said, man, I think I'm going to get this job, Lydia. A week went by, didn't hear anything. Two weeks went by. I'll never forget, I went in the bedroom and I started praying. I said, Lord, that's why I love you so much. Exactly what David says, man will not forget. I'm so glad you forget and you love me. I'm your child. And that week, I got a great job. But my point is, Jesus Christ, he knows what we're going through. He knows our pains. He knows all of those things. And when we're going through those things, he's right there with us, going through them also. But God has chosen, and it's his choice, the foolish things. He doesn't want us to care about this life down here, of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Eli Musk 
Christopher Hitchens, they can have all the money down here they want. Because if they do not repent of their sins, along with a lot more people, but we're just talking about the so-called wise now, they will spend an eternity in hell, and I don't want that for them. But I tell you, I know a lot of people who boast in wisdom and boast in how smart they are. And when you present the gospel to them, they're like a goat in a hailstorm. They just can't understand it. I'm glad God called me. I'm glad he called you guys. It doesn't matter down here how we live. We're going to spend the eternity with our Savior. What is 70 years? I used to, when I was 18 or 20, I used to say, what is 40 years? Then I hit 40. Then I said, what is 60 years? And then I hit 60. Man, it goes quick. And I have the audacity to say, since I'm 62, man, 62 is not too bad, <laughs> but it is. That's a plan that, that and I want to tell you this, that's a plan of Satan and the worldview. This is why when God is wanting us, these tents to break off, and I told you about the gray hair and all that, God is trying to tell us, you're getting close, you're getting close, you're going home, you're going home. But the world says, oh, no, the 60 is the new 40. Now, good gracious, that's crazy if you believe that. <laughs> I've been 40. 60 is the new 40. I heard them say that. No, 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 no. My tent is wearing out, and I'm glad it's wearing out because the more it wears out, the more I look up. Nobody's going to be here forever. Paul knew that. Paul was happy. Paul was one of the noble ones, one of the elite ones. He was a smart man. But God chose most of us. In this world, we're nobodies, and that's okay with me. Verse 30 tells us, but of him you, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became our wisdom from God and the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is those things. And because Jesus is those things, I'm in Christ, I'm, in, I'm those things. When, when, when he looks at me spiritually, I've already told you on Easter Sunday, Jesus has already hit the home run. The scoreboard does not reflect we're winning, but he's hit the home run. He's rounding the bases, and one day he's going to call us home to victory. We're just waiting on the scoreboard to change. He's did the work. Verse 31 says that as it is written, he who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. That's why salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He puts it out of the realm of my wisdom or your wisdom. And he says, no, you, you've got to believe in what the world calls a defeated Savior, who the world says is still in the grave. And that's moronic to those who believe. Well, call me a moron. I don't only believe it. I know it. Because there's an empty, empty tomb in Jerusalem. 
chapter 2, verse 1 says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, Paul says, did not come with excellent of speech. He begins to speak about himself and the condition he came, or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God by means of the cross he's chose those he's called. And then he says, for I determined, and this is where most people say Paul was defeated in Athens. If you, if you ask people, they will say, no, Paul didn't even preach the gospel in Athens. But I don't believe that. He says, for I determined, he just resolved it in his mind. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul resumes a description of his preaching there. When he got there, he focused less on form of preaching and more directly on the form of the preacher right there. He says, I came to you emphasizing that this is how he was when he arrived. I was with you, suggesting he manifested weakness in his own going relationship with them. Like I said, I, reg- I-, I disagree with how-, how most theologians says he did not preach the gospel in Athens. Remember I said when we first started this book, I said from the beginning that the church in Corinth had a beef with Paul. They, they didn't have all those sects and everything and going at each other, the main reason Paul writes these letters is because they had changed, they had turned on the Apostle Paul. Maybe it was because of his speech, and I told you it was because they said that the Apostle Paul wasn't a man full of the Spirit. And he didn't boast and brag on Sophia, which is wisdom, and they didn't like that. Neither did Apollos, neither did Peter, but they just was hung up on Paul. He says, this is what they thought about Paul in verse 4. Verse 4, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words. He wasn't trying to impress anyone. Here he reminds the Corinthians and us that the real power does not lie in the person or presentation of the preacher, but in the work of the Spirit. And that's evidence here. He says in the latter part, and my speech, Paul says, and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit of power. The Corinthians were there, and they thought Paul would say lofty words to them and present just a a very spiritual Look out. But Paul doesn't do that. He begins to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's why they are saved. More likely, when it says conversion with the attending gift of spirit, which was probably evidenced by the spirit giving especially, especially tongues. So what, what I'm saying, trying to say here, remember the church in Corinth, they were speaking in tongues And when they were speaking in tongues, they thought they had arrived. And Paul gets there. He writes them the letter because he's saying, look, you guys are drunk at the Lord's table. You guys won't share your food with anyone. You guys have all of these cliques going on. 
But yet and still, you think you're pneumaticus. You're full of the spirit. And Paul says, this is how you know that you're full of the spirit, ladies and gentlemen. You're full of the spirit when you don't have those clicks, when you're laying your life down for your brother or sister, when you're following the Lord. Paul says these gifts doesn't mean anything. The gifts was only coming to the church of 1 Corinthians because where they lived. Remember, they only had two ports, Centuria and, and I forget the other. So a lot of people were coming to Corinth. And so maybe someone heard their, their, their uh, I can't think of the word, dialect when they went to church there and that made them believers. But they've seen They've arrived because Sophia, they, they, have, they think they have wisdom. And Paul is saying, no, it doesn't matter how much the church speaks in tongues. It doesn't matter how much the church prophesy. Are you living? Are you living your life for Jesus? That's what Paul says. I'm here living my life for Jesus. That's what Paul tells the church of Corinth. And that shows I'm full of the Spirit. That's what he's telling them. That's why this church in Corinth, they have a beef with Paul. Because Paul says, I don't care how many people you have speaking in tongues. Are you living an authentic Christian life? I've been in churches all my life, and I've seen people run the aisle, speak in tongues, get outside, and live just like unbelievers. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't test yourself by you speaking in tongues. Test yourself about how you live. If your living matches what this word says, then you are who you say you are. It doesn't matter how much you speak in tongues. It matters how you live. That's why they wanted Paul. They, they wanted to run him out of town because he was giving them truth. Whenever you give people truth, most, most of the time, they don't like it anyway. So Paul knew that. But Paul wasn't trying to serve them. He had a higher standard. He was serving Jesus Christ. Someone had to break it to them, and that's what Paul does. That's why they have beef with Paul. So once again, are you following the Lord? Are you dying to yourself? The foolishness of preaching, the worship team can come up. That's what it's about. I used to say when I wouldn't, would not preach here, I would go, I, and I've been to a couple of churches, and God forbid if I call their names, when Brian or Jonathan preaching, and I've, I've been to a couple. I've heard a lot of things about them, but I, I finally went there. The word is not being preached, especially the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how things, that's how you, you are changed. You are saved by the word of God, Jesus Christ. You grow by the word of God. That's what it's about. Paul says, I did not come to you with excellent or speech. I don't come here with excellence of speech. But I do share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want your children to be saved, continue to pray. 
continue to live holy lives in front of them. God will take care of the rest. If you want the world to change, and it's not going to, but you might have peace in your county, in your area, you pray for the people there and live godly lives. God will show himself strong. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that it's not with man's wisdom that we get to come to know you. I would have never made it, but it's your wisdom. Hmm. You called me. You called us. You had to. We would have never come to you. Salvation, I will say it again, begins and ends with you. Where's room for boasting? There's not any. There's not any. Lord, would you continue to call my unsaved cousins and and sons and daughters here, Lord, children? Would you continue to call them home? Lord, we love you. We love you. Holy Spirit, would you come and move mightily at Calvary Restore? Would you do that? And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen.